We had people that worked really hard on those intros, so they're up there so you can, people can see them. I think Sarah does a great job with announcements. I, okay, first service, I said, like, yay, Sarah. But really, because I had all these things written down to talk about, and she said them all. I'm like, well, I, I guess I don't need to say anything. I, I do want to reiterate, you know, Good Friday, page 89 of your journey guides. That's what it's going to be, 6 p.m. Friday night. Uh, the thing that we did went live. I always like to say every Good Friday is different than the last Good Friday, except for this Good Friday. It's a lot like last Good Friday because it's by video. But we did that because of what's in the journey guide and how we intend for you to walk through that. It's not, you, you don't have to just rush right through. You can pause at each thing, each verse that's read. You can pray about different things. You can take communion in places where you, where you feel like it. It's, it's meant to be a guided thing where you can do it at home with the journey guides. Again, page 89 so you can do that. Now, also, if and if you're watching online or if you're in this room and you're like, you know, I, I, I'm really afraid to go with it, or not afraid, but concerned about having a bunch of people there, Saturday night, 6 p.m. is probably going to be a great service for you. There'll be a lot less people there, and you can distance like in probably every corner of the room, and you're going to be fine if you want to do that. I also noticed something last week as well. A bunch of people told me this. They say, you talk way faster when people are in the room. I'm like, I talk fast anyway, but... Good, go, go me. I, I don't. I'm. So, I'm going to try and slow down today. I'm going to do my best with this. Uh, if uh, you are new to Element, what we're doing in the middle of the message right now is we're putting up a slide that helps with the live stream, and that's a place to kind of take a break. And that slide is going to have a question that goes a little deeper into the message and what we're talking about. So if on the live stream, you can pause that and do that. But if you're in the room, what you can do is take your journey guides. Page 78 and 79 is the notes section, and you can write the question I asked there, maybe talk about it after service, either with somebody outside or on the way home or whatever. If you also uh, have a small device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on more and then events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device if you're in our area. If not, type in the zip code 93455 and then we'll come up that way and you will get announcements and the verses we go through, but everything else is going to be in the journey guides that we're going through in the book of Job. If you need one, you're in the room. They're in the back of the room. If you are watching online, there's actually a PDF link in that version that you can download that and start to go through it. What we want to do is have all of Element going through the same thing together as we do this. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this, because we've been so separated for so long that this is a way we're all reading the same verses, talking about the same things, praying the same direction. So we're beginning to come together again. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. If you're in the room, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Uh, if you're watching online, you're probably sitting on your couch, but you can stand up if you want to. Uh, this is Job 38, verses 4 through 7, and this is God speaking. And I wish I had James Earl Jones' voice to do this, but I don't. I got my junior high girl voice, but here we go. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Let's pray. Father, we ask that today you would take us and teach us who you are, that we would understand better who you are in your person, and that that would in turn change us to be who you call us to be. We ask that we would see you and your glory and be a people who are concerned about your glory. And so in turn, we get to be those who live in joy because of what you have done for us. Teach us to understand who you are today better than we ever have. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is week seven of week eight, going through the book of Job. If you have given something up for your Lent journey, you have seven days left. 
seven days, seven days left. And then you pick it back up again. Unless it's something that was terrible, then don't pick it back up again. I am not going to binge on cookies. At least I tell myself this now. I'm thinking it just might happen when I get there. Anyway, if you've missed a lot of this, there's a thing a lot of churches follow called the church calendar. And the church calendar has different seasons in it. Like before Christmas, you have the four weeks to Christmas, and we call that Advent. From January 20, or, uh, December 24th to January 6th, this is the season of Epiphany. It culminates in this feast. And then you get to this thing that is called Lent. And Lent is a journey that starts seven weeks before Easter. And it's about giving up and understanding what God gave up to rescue and save us, seeing ourselves and who we would be without who he is, and that all culminates in Easter where we celebrate. And again, Element's been doing this journey uh, to bring us to where we're going to be next week in celebration on Easter, but today is also another interesting day in the church calendar. It is what is called Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is the celebration of when Jesus goes into Jerusalem riding a donkey. Now, you might think, why does he ride a donkey? It seems like a horse would be much more smooth. Well, when kings went into a town in order for peace, they would ride donkeys. If they went in for war, they would ride a horse. So Jesus goes into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's one of the reasons in the Old Testament when God prophesies about the Messiah coming, he says, behold, he will come to you on a donkey because it's for the purpose of peace. And so Jesus comes in and reveals himself that he is the Redeemer and the Messiah. Now what happens today in the book of Job is that God reveals himself. God speaks today. I think it's very exciting. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 40. Now, as I've been going through all these things in the book of Job, I haven't been reading everything that everybody says through it. Same thing's going to be true of God today. I'm not going to read you everything God says. Uh, I'm going to read you more of him than I have of anybody else. But I want to give you the big ideas because it's not really a three-point sermon. It's a direction we're going with the entire book. And these are the big ideas in this, that we are going to see the character of who God is. And when we understand the character of who God is, that should completely change our lives. And that God, we see no more better revealed than in the person of Jesus Christ, which is where we're going to kind of end all of this with. So that's where you go if you want to write that down. That, that's our trajectory. So all through the book of Job, Job has been hoping for an audience with God himself. He wants answers directly from the Almighty. I love that Tim Keller points out that the book of Job is for mature people. It's, it's not for people who are not mature because all through the book, nothing gets sugarcoated. Everything is very hard. There's tons of questions. And even when God shows up and answers Job, it's very hard. Today, a lot lot of people say things like, well, I want to meet with God. I want to have an encounter with God. And what they really mean is they want some spiritual moment that makes them feel good on the backside. But what the book of Job shows up is that we have no idea what we're really asking for. If God shows up in his person, because God is about his glory, not about ours. We were made for God. God was not made for us. Even when we talk about this thing called Good Friday and Jesus going to the cross, it's not that Jesus is thinking about us the entire time. It's that Jesus is thinking about the glory of God and what he does. He rescues us for the glory of God. And that in turn means our goodness of what comes out of that. And it's simply beautiful. And if God shows up, his presence so dwarfs ours that we don't even, can't even think straight. And so next time someone says, oh, I want to have an encounter with God, just think about that for a moment. Like when Moses meets God, God has to hide Moses in a cleft of a rock, cover him with his hand so God's glory doesn't scorch him. Uh, when, you, when you look in the Old Testament, there's a temple. They had a, a ho- most holy place in the temple. A high priest went in there only once a year. When God shows up in the scriptures, people tremble. They pass out. I think that I would probably wet myself. I, there's all kinds of things that take place. 
And when, when God finally does show up in chapter 38, Job kind of cuts God off in the middle of what God is saying. And Job is stammering with his words at that point. Job 40, verses 4 and 5, Job says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. It's like, here you are. You're saying these things. I don't know what to say. Right, so maybe you just shouldn't say anything. That would be a good place to start, Job. Okay, so we're going to take a step back here, because if you're new this week, you've missed most of the book of Job. That's not anything we're throwing on you. There's, you can get all the messages, they're online, you get what you pay for. Uh, but there are these booklets in the back, you can grab those and walk through all these weeks. And we want to see, as we walk through this and understand who Job is, that he gets to the place of understanding God through absolutely horrible suffering. Again, when we say things like, oh, God, I want to meet you and see your face, we think, okay, I've got to pray, I've got to obey, I've got to surrender, which is true. I mean, those are good, good things to do. But the truth is, one of the ways that God gets us to see him face to face is through suffering in our lives, through unpleasant things. God does not typically show up and give us back rubs and pour out the essential oils and pray, play sounds of rushing water, uh, where it's like this folded hands, hallmark, sons of... You know, sprays of light coming through the stained glass window kind of thing. When God shows up, he shows up in his person to change us to see who he is. Because, again, it's about his glory. God shows up to a guy named Jacob in the Old Testament, and he wrestles with him all night. Basically, beats him up all night long in order to mature him into who he needed to be. And when God goes and he shows himself to Job through all of this suffering, on the backside, Job is just beginning to understand who God is and how good God is. Why? Because Job's focus had become so put upon himself. He was not looking at who God is. And so many times God has to pull our focus from ourselves to point it to who he is. And that's what he does. And if you sit down and read the book of Job, a lot of times you'll come away confused. You might come away disillusioned. We don't understand all of it. And again, when I say it's for the mature, that's not a dig on anyone's age. As people get older, you go through more and more life circumstances. And you understand hardship and you understand diversity. And I think it's I'm like, I don't know what that is. There's a swing going on. Um, it's, it's why it's good for all of us to have a relationship with people who are older and people who are younger than we are. A, a lot of people just don't get it. Maybe I don't get it. Maybe we've gone to the book of Job and you're thinking, man, Aaron is just clueless. And maybe I am, but, but whatever. In the beginning of the book, we are told that Job was a man who feared God, shunned evil, he was blameless, he was upright, and he was extremely wealthy. And there's this character in the beginning of the book called the accuser. We translate that as the word Satan. And this character goes to God and says, I'm going to go after this guy Job, and I'm going to do this and this. And God says, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. You can do this, but you can't do that. And so one day, Job is standing in his home, and a messenger comes running in and says, these, these robbers came in, and they took all of your your livestock and killed all the workers of those livestock. It's a bad day. But right on the heels of that, a second servant comes in and says, lightning came down from the sky and it destroyed all of your sheep and the workers of those sheep. Another bad day. And then the third one comes in right on the heels of that and says the same thing about Job's camels. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been on a camel. I've been forced onto a camel. The guy wouldn't let me off unless I gave him $10. And camels are not nice. They spit. So I personally don't care that all Job's camels die. That's just how I feel. But what it's telling you is that all of Job's capital is now gone. Job is now poor. And right on the heels of that, someone else comes running in, and they say that all of your kids who were having this party in this this house, a wind came, and the wind destroyed the house that your kids were having this party in, and all your children are dead. 
what Job does is he tears his clothes, he shaves his head, and he cries out, Job 121, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's why he responds. We think, that's amazing because I wouldn't respond that way. But Job is actually dealing with this theologically. Job's dealing with this really in, in his head. He's dealing with it all up here. And what he's saying is, which is true, if I'm honest, I came here with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. What matters is God over all. My kids were even gods throughout all of this. And if that's where the book ended, that'd be pretty cool. But you get a lot of sermons about theology and head knowledge and all of that. But that's not where the book ends. The second thing that happens is Job's health is now attacked. The accuser goes after that, and Job gets these boils all over his body. He sits on an ash heap, and he's got these these pieces of pottery, and he's scraping the boils to get the pus out. It's descriptive, and it's disgusting. And in the middle of this, Job's wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, Job is in great control of his suffering here, I think, because he says this thing in Job 2.10 to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He says, should we accept good from God and not accept the boils that we have? And again, Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Now think about that if you're married uh, or in a relationship or hope to be one day. (laughs) How does that go over, right? Because all they hear is, you called me foolish. And then the backpedaling starts, right? No, 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 I didn't call you foolish. I said, you're acting like one of the foolish women, but you're not one of the foolish women. Ah." And it's over, right? This is why the book of Job is for mature people, just like marriage is in it to be for mature people. You're not supposed to take every little word and slight that you hear in the wrong way because you're going to get that other person. It's that we understand the best of what somebody else says. We must understand the best of what God is saying, his intentions throughout the scriptures, because when God does show up and God speaks, Job could take it the wrong way. He doesn't, but he could. Now, after Job's wife says this, Job's friends show up. Uh, The accuser, Satan, disappears from the book, and then these three guys show up, kind of doing the same job as the accuser. But they say the exact opposite thing of Job's wife. Job's wife will say, curse God and die. His friends say, curse yourself. That's what you should do, because you must be evil, and that's why God is doing this to you. Again, Job's wife is, God is wicked, you should curse God, get rid of God. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, which are Job's friends, they say, we've never seen an innocent man perish and suffer like you. You must be to blame. God wouldn't do this to you unless you yourself did something wrong. And so his friends are like, you need to do a bunch of soul searching and and find out what you did wrong. And at this point, you see Job just loses it. And he goes from the theological head knowledge fully into his heart. And he just kind of starts working through all these things down here, not really thinking about who God is anymore, but becomes internally focused in himself. In chapter 3 through chapter 31, it's just this back and forth dialogue between Job and his miserable counselors. And the whole time Job is like, I am suffering innocently, and I want God to tell you how I'm suffering innocently. And really, that almost seems true, like we know the book, but Job 29, 30, and 31, Job talks about the life he was living, and it's amazing. Uh, Keller actually says it's one of the highest, most noble, most complete systems of ethics you're going to find anywhere in all of literature, not just the Bible. Because what you see is Job talking about his social righteousness, his personal righteousness, his sexual righteousness, his relational righteousness. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 38. What you see when Job talks about all, though, is where is his focus? On himself on himself. It's not upon God anymore. It's all internal. 
And this again, why is this another character shows up? We looked at last week named Elihu, who points him back to God. Stop looking at yourself. We're going to look at who God is. Job is complaining. God won't answer me. He even says in Job 23, if I knew where God was at, I'd cross that ocean. I'd walk across that continent. I'd go to the place where he is, and I would interrogate him like a hostile witness, and I would make him tell me that I am innocent so that I can know. Again, his whole focus is upon himself. This takes you to Job chapter 38, where God actually does show up. Show yourself, God. Okay, Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Job, you think you're going to question me? Well, I'm going to question you. God appears out of this great storm. He answers Job, but it's not the answers Job is looking for. It's not the direction Job thought this was going to go. Now, when we read this, we come away with even bigger questions. Uh, Two things that God does not do here is, first off, God gives no explanations to Job at all in what he says. You read the book, we have lots of ideas about why God is doing what he's doing, these conversations that take place in heaven between God and the accuser, God growing and enriching Job, and I believe that God is going to do that. He is going to hone and strengthen and deepen and change Job to make him a greater person, but God doesn't say anything about that to Job. None of those things. Job has been asking for chapters, why, 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 and God doesn't answer the why. He gives no explanation. The second thing is that God gives no comfort to Job. No comfort to Job, at least how we would consider comfort. He doesn't rub his back and you know, pour out the essential oils or anything like that. He just goes relentlessly after Job, and he keeps asking Job questions. And these questions come down to one thing, is who do you think you are? And I know when we say that to somebody else, it sounds like fighting words, but that's not how God means this. This is a resetting of who Job is. Job, who are you? Who are you? That's what he keeps asking, and Job gets it. Though I don't think we do. God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You know, the thing God says over and over doesn't seem to be an explanation, but Job, in the end, does get it. He is not offended. He understands. And I want to talk about that, but before I do, here's my question. If you're taking notes, you can write this question down. If you're watching online, you can pause and answer this. But this is my question. If God showed up to you in the midst of your suffering, what would you expect him to do? See, we all have expectations of what we think God needs to do, and we have to define those because when our expectations don't get met, that's when we say, oh, God failed because we had this thing God had to do, and he didn't do it. So what expectations do you have if God shows up that he would actually do? Because when God shows up, it's usually different than our expectation. So let me show you what God says. He's going to say all these questions to Job. Let's see if you get it or if you're offended. We'll see how it goes. Uh, Job chapter 38, starting in verse 4. God says, And again, I wish I had James Earl Jones' voice. I don't, but where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who are you? Verse 8, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud ways be stayed. Who are you? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Who are you? Verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? 
Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of Pleiades and loose the cords of Orion? Those are stars, by the way, in case you don't know. It's not something for men in black on a cat's collar. And this, who are you? Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that may go and say to you, here we are? Verse 41, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Who are you? Chapter 39, verse 1, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Verse 9, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will we spend the night at your manger? Verse 19, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with the mane? Verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings towards the south? Is that your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Who are you? I don't know how those words make you feel, but it kind of takes me back. It makes me realize, oh my goodness, God is creator. He's amazing. He's the revealer of who he is. Joe, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Surely you are so old, you saw it, you know how it happened, didn't you? Where were you when, when I set doors on the sea and I said, this is how far you can come? Joe, go down to the sea, stand at the, sea, at the shoreline and be like, stop! What's going to happen? Your feet are going to get wet. What happens when I say stop? The waters get out of my way or I walk across the top of them. This is what God does. This is what he reveals to Job. And, and Job just kind of has that stammering in the middle of it. And God's like, yeah, whoo. You can, you can stop, stop talking here, Job, because God's like a late-night infomercial. He's like, but wait, there's more. He, he, he keeps going. In chapter 40, he will say, Job, you say that I am unjust. Do I have to be called unjust and be condemned for you to feel like you're justified? Try your own hand at justice. See, God is showing himself creator, revealer, but where's the comforter? We're, we're going to get there. You're going you're to see this. Open your Bibles at Job chapter 42. Job 42. Uh, D.A. Carson writes this great book about suffering. In the middle of it, he says, too often what we want is a God of sentimentality, the God that shows up and rubs our backs and our feet and pours out those essential oils. He goes, but we, what we have a God is a God of loving justice. That's what we have, a God who brings justice because the world so sorely needs it, but he is also a God of love that brings those things. And when you look at Job, it's like there's almost no explanation, no comfort, and yet Job is going to be completely changed. Job's focus is going to go from himself as myopic view of his life to go and see who God actually is. In Job 42, verse 3, Job will be like, okay, you asked who obscures your counsel without knowledge? It's me. I'm sorry. You know, surely I spoke of things I didn't understand. But then Job will say this, Job 42, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What this is, is understanding. I've heard about you. I've read about you. But now I get to see who you really are because of how God showed up, because of the questions that God asked. So let me show you what I mean. Again, it may seem odd or mean to you, and a lot of commentators think this, that God is just being mean, that he doesn't really answer Job's questions. But here's the thing. God steps into this place with Job to show Job that, Job, your mind is finite, and I am infinite. And this is the beauty in God's responses to Job that we all seem to miss, because God's questions to Job are going to indicate to Job what kind of person God is in his being. 
All the questions that God asked Job relates to God's extravagant goodness and provision, even though there is no strategic benefit in the world for it whatsoever. So look at this again, Job 38, verses 25 to 27. God says, Who cleft a channel for torrents of rain and the way way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man? Why would you do that if nobody's there? God says to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. In Job's days, those words would just jump out at you because rainfall is essential to life. No one wastes water, but God does. Maybe you think, well, I'm like, God, I take a half an hour shower. That's not what he's talking about here. Why would God waste water in a place where no one lives? Because God is a God of goodness and grace. He is uncontrollably generous, and he loves to give. And there is a wilderness where nobody lives that is beautiful because God sends a river through it. It's amazing. In Job 39, God talks about these mountain goats that nobody sees, and yet he's there when they give birth. He talks about the donkeys that no one can tame, not that you'd want to tame those wild donkeys. He talks about the ostrich that is goofy and weird and has these long legs and flaps its wings, and it's never going to go anywhere. Why would God waste time making this thing called an ostrich? Why? Because it has no value. And God says, Job 39, verse 18, because when she runs, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Why does God waste the talent? Why does he do that? In Job chapter 40, uh, Job talks about this creature that translates as behemoth. I know it sounds like the next foe for Godzilla, uh, but this is what it says, Job 40, verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Now, a lot of people think that this refers to a rhino or a hippo. A rhino or a hippo in the ancient world had no value whatsoever. You can't ride them. You can't make them plow your field. They don't do anything but what they really want to do. Why would God make this? God even says, Job 40, verse 19, he is the first of the works of God. Literally, he ranks first among my works. When God says, I made the hippo, he says, that's my A game. The hungry, hungry hippo. That, that's my A game. Why does God do this? Why does he show Job this? Because God is showing that he loves and watches over and finds joy and beauty in the least strategic creatures. And what God is telling Job is, Job, I am worth it, loving me following me, getting close to me is worth it. Don't give up. Don't give in to what your friends say, all those naysayers. I am the God who's worth hoping in and trusting in and getting close to. God reveals himself in this way because of Job's pain. Job had turned all towards himself. He'd lost all understanding about who God is and who God's character is. And and so God turns Job back to himself by asking these questions. And if you want to write this down, God shows to Job Job that God is graciously good, uncontrollably generous, and irrationally loving. And I use that word irrational because the way we consider it is irrationally loving. Because God gives no reason for this generosity. It's just his nature. God does not love us because of our performance. God does not love us for what he gets out of us, but because he himself is good. Thousands of years later, Jesus will show up. He will talk about sparrows. A sparrow is a useless bird in the ancient world. Uh, The only thing that you could do with it is if you're poor, you you could afford a couple of those for a penny for your sacrifice in the temple because you couldn't afford anything else. And yet Jesus says this, Matthew 10, 29 to 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are more value than many sparrows. See, God thinks about the sparrows. And even in that, you have hairs on your head. Some of you more than others, I know. But he knows every single one of them. He knows that. And what God is saying is, Job, if I care about the sparrows like that, don't ever think I'd forget about you. Don't think that. Uh, Annie Dillard writes some of the most amazing prose. Uh, Some of it's weird. Some of it's like, I'm like, eh, but some of it's just amazing. And this is what she writes. She says, 
When I begin to think about God's wild extravagance, his wastefulness, his passion for the unnecessary and excessive and the completely useless, I am struck by a thought so wonderfully freeing I can do nothing but laugh. What if that extravagance extends to me? I mean, wow. Job is a guy who sees God's wildest extravagance, and he sees that it actually extends to him. I think he smiles, shuts his mouth, trusts to God, and I think he becomes comforted. I think that's what happens. And as I said, Job never finds out about the conversation that took place in, in heaven. He's a lot like us. We don't always get the answers to all of our questions, not that there aren't answers out there, but the same thing that is offered to Job is offered to us. We get to see who God is in his person. Job says, Job 42, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now he understands better who God is. Job understands that God knows him, and God loves him, just like he does for us. Now, if you're still in Job 42, good place to be. We're going to go back there if you're not, so you can go there. But I almost saved this last part for next week, but I really want to wind up Job's story here this week. Uh, Someone who was reading my notes, and they said, what are you going to do on Easter? looks like you wind up the story of Job. Well, I kind of do, because next week now turns to us and how we're going to live with this knowledge of of who God is. But what you see in Job here, uh, the turbulence after this is put away. Uh, All the questions Job has starts to go away. Job's anger subsides. God will even tell everybody that Job responded correctly. Well, how does Job respond? Well, that's the end of Job chapter 42, kind of about how that book ends. And I actually missed this for years. I was reading a book by John Orberg, and he has this chapter called Wintry Spirituality. And in this chapter, he talks about this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's brilliant. So I'll share it to you. It's not me. Came from somewhere else. If you like it, if it's bad, blame me, whatever. Okay, uh, uh, but he talks about this at the end of the book. So this is what the ancient readers would have saw that we most likely missed. Job 42, verses 12 through 15. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. So what that is right there is he has more than he had before. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karin Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. So Job has more kids again, but the text goes on to recount the names of the daughters, not the sons. Now, in the ancient world, the family line is carried on by the sons. In any genealogy, you would have that, the family line, coming from the sons. That's who you you list in in the text. But Job doesn't. It lists the names of the daughters, the females. Hebrew names are always about some deep theological truth of some sort. Job names his daughters about things of beauty. So it says he called the first name of his daughter Jemima. That would mean like dove, not like the bath bar, but like a, this, this bird, this white beautiful bird that gets released at a wedding. It's this beautiful creature. That's what he names her. The name of the second, Keziah. That means something like cinnamon or a prized spice. The name of the third, Karin Hapuk, and that means like horn of eyeshadow, like it's Maybelline or, or Mac or whatever the Kardashians are hawking these days, whatever that is. And it's just about, about beauty. And then Job gives them an inheritance. And you never gave daughters an inheritance. That was useless because it would only go to their husband's family. When a family came and married one of your daughters, they would give you the bride price. You didn't give them these things. You're, you gave it to your sons. Your sons would take care of you in your old age. Why does the writer tell us this? Because it shows that Job now understands who God is. And now Job is delighting in and loving and giving to the least strategic creatures as well. Job is now seen as graciously good, uncontrollably generous, and irrationally loving for the sole reason that God is. 
the whole first part of the book. What is it? God, say I'm innocent. Say I'm innocent. Say I'm innocent. And at the end of the book, what is it? I'm going to live like you. Completely changed. See, the accuser was wrong about what he said to God. And God was right. And God accomplished his purposes in Job through this, again, absolutely horrible suffering. But Job discovers what people in pain sometimes learn better than anybody, anybody else. He was never alone. God was with him every step of the way. We are never alone. So when Jesus comes to the earth, it's in the middle of the, the, where the Romans ruled everything. And the Romans instituted this thing called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. But it wasn't really a real peace. It was you disagree with us, we're going to kill you and stab you with the sword. That's how they brought peace. God had been silent for 400 years. They think God has left us. God never left them. But they started to feel that way. And so what God does then is he sends a prophet, John the baptizer, and he says, prepare the way of the Lord. You know, God is coming. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus steps into the mess that we had made. Jesus speaks in the midst of our hopelessness. He reveals who God is. Jesus will even experience the ultimate loss upon the cross. You think Job went through a lot of stuff? Matthew 27, 46, Jesus hangs on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross is this bizarre paradox. God experiences the loss of God in order to bring us who are far away from God to God himself. We don't really even completely understand that. I don't think we ever can. And this is why you have to spend all these weeks slowly plodding through each of these things with Job and his wife and Satan and the friends and Elihu to get to this place because you walk through it, and all the questions we have that get answered or don't get answered, and we end up in this place. One writer says, Never did we see his, God's glory, more clearly than when he was on the cross, taking our forsakenness upon himself. Karl Barth wrote this, The great miracle is that God would rather be the suffering God of a suffering people than the blessed God of an unblessed people. And this is what the book of Job really shows us, when God shows up to say, this is who I am. Everything in Job really leads us straight to the gospel, the full revelation of God himself. And that revelation is that God has always been right here with us, most especially when we didn't even know it. And in Jesus, we get to see fully and truly who God is in his person. And I wonder how we would live differently if we fully understood who God is in his person. How would not just our suffering change, but how would how we treat one another begin to change? How if we started to love one another, how would that look like if we understood who God was in his person apart from our circumstances? And my prayer throughout this book of Job for all of us is that we would get the better idea of who God is, especially as we come to understand the gospel. Because the gospel isn't about answering all of our unanswered questions. It's about answering the ultimate question that we all have, and that is, who is God? Why does he love me? Why does he rescue me? I mean, we can have questions, and it's not that there's never an answer, but the place we start is understanding that God himself is good, and God has brought restoration to us in the person of Jesus, that God is good and generous and loving, and he has fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. See, we get to see something that Job never got to see, that God steps into this mess, and he himself would die for us. The ultimate final word that was spoken was in the person of Christ. We had run from God. We'd accused him of things that are not true. We think that we are God and we want to determine our own lives. And what does Jesus do? Steps into our mess of all the rebellion that we've had and draws us back to God himself because of what he has done. This is why we talk about communion at Element every single week. It's meant to be the reminder of what the, the gospel is. It's that Christ died for our sins. So I take the cracker like his body was broken for as you dip it in the, or drink the grape juice. 
I don't know how good it is in those single serves. You know, but, but it's the reminder that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Not that we're the point. It's that God and his glory is the point, but God saves us because he loves us. That's who he is in his character. And I think if we would understand that better, it would again change how we live. It would change how we worship. It would change really everything about us when we understand the gospel. I think it's this whole thing I'll talk about next week a bit about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I mean, Job gets this taste. We get a much deeper taste because we see what Christ did. And that in turn should change how we then live. So I'm going to invite the band up. I said, I'm going to invite you. If you'd like to, you take communion. You can take it home with you as well. You don't have to have it here. They're all single serve. Nothing's going to spill on you or anything like that. Uh, but I would encourage you to take communion. If you need prayer, uh, uh, you can go in, in the back or at the Welcome Center and let someone know maybe you're in a place today. And you have spent all your life thinking that God is this angry ogre that just wants to take your life out, that everything he does in your life is to make you see how you're a little worm that doesn't mean anything. And that's not true. That God is a God who wants to reveal himself because only by revealing himself the way that he does does it enable us to really begin to understand how our lives make sense. They only make sense in him, in him. So we become a people who surrender all that we are to him. And if you need prayer, they love to pray with you about that. Uh, again, there's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us, giving is simply part of our worship. It's a, it's a response to our generous God who has been so generous with us. And then you have those journey guides. And, and this week, as you walk through those questions, think about this, who God is. Who God, you know, read through Job 38 through 42 and just look at these words that God says about himself and just be like, well, yeah, uh, I can't tell the sea to stop. You can go try. It'll be fun. You can do it today, maybe if you want to. And, and just, oh, but God says this, and this happens. God strings the stars. God does all this, and we stand back in awe of that revelation. But the greater revelation of Jesus, God coming in the flesh to rescue us when we were so far away. And so spend time with one another. You know, even going through that question of how do you expect God to show up to you in your suffering? Well, I'll tell you, God showed up in the person of Jesus in the midst of our suffering. And that changes who we are. Let's be a people who think about and understand the great grace of the gospel and what God has done to save us. And then live out our lives so we would show who God is in his greatness, in his goodness, in his lovingness, and in his, uh, all of those things so that people would see and know that God is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would move us to get a better understanding of who you are. And like Job, that understanding wouldn't lead us into a place of you know, being myopic, just looking at ourselves and, oh, God save me. But we'd open our minds up to see everything, that we'd be a people with those around us who become giving and loving, that we would serve one another, that we would truly begin to live like you in this world. that by understanding the amazing grace that we have received, our lives would so be transformed that you would be known wherever we go simply by how we begin to live. And we thank you for all the steps that we go through in the book of Job. And I ask that you would teach us as we are friends with one another to not be like Job's friends, who focus solely on their own righteousness, but we be those who focus upon your righteousness and how you have given that righteousness to us, that as the result of the gospel, we get to be in your family again.
and those are the things that we would speak. That you would be glorified. That we would live in ways that honor you. And that the whole world would know the great God who has rescued us. Thank you for your saving grace. Teach us to live that out every day. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.